chapter 2. Last week, Nick led us through 1 John 1. I wasn't here, but listen to the podcast. I'm hoping you do listen to the podcast of the sermons you miss, because it's well worth doing. And what I notice as I come to chapter 2 is that John is stuck on, his record is stuck. He often comes under fire for repeating what he's written in the previous chapter, as well as unpacking it further. So yes, last week, Nick unpacked what, it, what the uh, S word is, uh, and how we can be forgiven. And here in chapter 2, John's back on the, on the same groove. This is all about the S words. I think we all are aware of how repetition can be helpful a means of reminding us, of challenging us, of deepening our understanding. But of course it can also mean we become over-familiar and disengage. And perhaps when it comes to reading something like John's 1 John, we just skate over some of the things that it says. But I want to thank John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for focusing in this epistle, this letter, on something that's not popular in this century, in our time, but the word and feelings and actions and issue of sin. He writes in verse 1 of chapter 2, I write to you this because so that you will not sin. I write this to you so that you will not sin. It's a common problem, isn't it? We have this in common that we will and do sin. And so he's saying, here's some things to help you understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and avoid sin. So that which we may risk treating lightly or not taking as seriously as we might, he is incredibly passionate about. Disciples, he says, should not sin. But when they do, the next verse, we have an advocate with the Father who will forgive. That gives us the opportunity to take up the challenge of modelling what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and therefore being able to introduce others and make disciples. The theologian John Piper writes, in summary, John's message to us today is this, don't sin. It's tremendously and terribly serious, but if you do sin, Don't despair because your attorney, he's American, is the son of the judge. He is righteous and he makes his case for you not on the basis of your perfection, but his propitiation, having taken your sin himself. Be of good courage. And he says, don't hog Jesus for yourself alone. (laughs) Go and make disciples. So John is addressing this early church and his readers down through the centuries and us today and describing this important step of understanding what it means to sin and so that we can avoid it at all costs. And it's really interesting in the chapter, if we look at verses 12 to 14, what you've got there is an outline of groups of people within any church and the church at large. It's an all-inclusive, I state that and I'll explain that, reference to every disciple in the church family. He starts in uh, uh, the first, verse 12, and he says, I'm writing to you, dear children. 
He's not talking about babies. He's talking here about those who've been born of God, born again. Uh, The Greek word means literally those who are born of God. That's everyone in the room and on the podcast and in the church at large. All of us together, children, he says, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven. Isn't that great news? He calls them in verse 1 of the chapter, my dear children. So he's got a, a, a passion an intimacy about the relationship he has with the rest of the people to whom he's writing. Then in verse 13, the first part, he talks about fathers. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I believe that this is referring to those who are mature in the faith. It's not intended to be a misogynist reference. Remember the culture that he was written to uh, would have influenced the words that he might have used. I'm sure we can read this as fathers and mothers in the faith. I guess we're going to pick up some of that in the series on the women in the Bible uh, during the autumn term. Then in the second part of verse 13, he refers to young men. And likewise, this term embraces those who are young in the faith. They are the ones who he's also writing to. Men and women, young men and women in the faith who are maturing, they're not yet fathers, they're, men and, uh, they're young men or young women. And then there's another reference to children in verse 14. He uses, apparently uses a different Greek word here. I don't know Greek, but I know where to find out. Uh, and, and in this Greek word refers to those who are at the very beginning of their faith journey. They've not yet grown up. These are the people we long to see and connect doing Disciples Explored next, uh, next term in, in, from October onwards. So there's these groups of people that are part of the church that represent all of us here and we have this great opportunity to hear his heart on this big challenge of sin. Yesterday we went to Eastbourne Lovely place to be in the sun, the Sunshine Coast. It's just about everywhere now, isn't it? Um, and we met, time, spent time with uh, three sets of grandchildren, nine of our 14 grandchildren. And of course, within that group, there was a diversity of age, of gender, of ability, stage of growth, levels of understanding, and an amazing array of talents. I could tell you so much. But their family... And so with family, there's always the potential for great joy and frustration or even war. That's kids, that's families, not just children either. However much their patriarch, I like to think of myself as their patriarch, my dad would argue he is, um, How much we may be filled with pride and love for these grandchildren, grandchildren, and have hopes for their futures and pray for their salvation. The fact is that they, like us, they are guilty of sin too. In chapter 5, we'll come to that in future weeks, verse 13, John gives his reason for writing and echoes what we have here in chapter 2. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that 
just an amazing prospect, picture, future. He doesn't want us to be bound, by, by, bound down by sin. He wants us to be set free. Many things in this chapter, I can't deal with them all. I'm just going to refer to two key highlights right now. That we are family and therefore we are to love one another. This diversity of people. There's a big chunk of that in this, this short chapter. We can, can we take that as read? Not as active, not as happening necessarily. We need to, to, to dwell on it. But secondly, he talks a lot about the importance of the word of God, the commandments, old and as he describes it, a new one. It's really important that those two things uh, begin to be more and more reflected in our lives within this family. And one of the ways uh, we often fall into traps is of, well, he says it, hating our brother or sister. All kinds of things can happen to cause that. And out, the outcome of that is disunity. And this part of the purpose of this chapter is to say we need to be one. We need to love one another. We need to follow the commands of Scripture. Justin Welby during the conference uh, suggested there are three problems with disunity. First, it hinders our prayers. Second, it diminishes profoundly our sense of God's love. And thirdly, it absolutely trips up and slows down and sometimes stops our mission and our evangelism. John would add here, you're going to be stumbling around in the darkness, blinded, like those without Jesus. So as we grow in the word and we grow in the family of God, we can, in Stephen Cottrell's words, be a living signpost pointing people to Jesus. What I want to come to specifically is understanding a little bit more about temptation and sin. Cheerful stuff on a Sunday night, but necessary, according to John. Verses 15 to 17. Some of us have been on holiday, as I've said, and some like, I think he's had to leave the building for a minute, but Nick and his family are going on holiday tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. Think of them tonight. Those two girls are just not going to sleep, are they? <laughs> well, I have to say, after two weeks on holiday, we came back uh, Sunday night, this, a little bit later than this last week, and uh, last Monday was quite shocking. It really was. Nobody made our breakfast. <laughs> Nobody did the washing up for us. Nobody made the bed and swept the floor. After two weeks of being idolized, maybe not idolized, served, it was down to us. We were to fend for ourselves. It was all over for now. And we were back to normality. That's holiday, isn't it? That's travel. Most of us love to travel, whether that's uh, around Essex. There's a lot of lovely things to see in Essex and Suffolk. Or whether that's around the rest of the country, there's so much good in this country, or to get on a plane or a boat and travel somewhere else. We love to enjoy the scenery, the relaxation, the resting from the rigours of everyday life, wherever it is. As we flew back into South End last Sunday night, uh, someone from, a little girl from behind us uh, said to her mum as she looked out the window, Mum, 
it looks like planet Earth. Well, yes. <laughs> and mum told her we hadn't actually left it. <laughs> but think about this planet for a moment. Think about this world in which we live. God's planet. God's amazing world that we can enjoy uh, in person and as we travel from the world or from the wealth of images that are available to us. But you know and I know, whatever your views on climate change may or may not be, we are constantly and continuously destroying this planet. That may be why we're experiencing such heat waves this year. Apparently the president of the International Panel on Climate Change said that by 2050, 30 years away, or soon after, there will not be 25 million refugees as there were in 1945, not 90 million people displaced refugees of climate change as there are today, but somewhere between 800 million and 1.2 billion. Things have to be changing and things have to be done to meet the need of the world and its peoples. Teresa was telling me a little bit about Rose's research in the States over these last few weeks. I've no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> Got a feeling, I don't know whether Teresa's still in the room, but I don't, I'm not sure she does either. <laughs> it's astonishing. But you know, we, might, we need to give thanks for the research that makes such things possible and will make things possible for the farmers of the future to grow the crops that we need to feed the world. But there is a far greater and more serious issue than climate change or even the need to have a holiday. 1 John 2 tackles again this destructive and terminal thing that is final. It's sin. Did you see that documentary on the life of Sir, Sir Mo Farah? Uh, a few weeks ago, I, we watched it on iPlayer this week. A national hero with a tragic beginning. Brought up in a war zone, his father killed, he was trafficked, lived in human slavery as a child, and since then lives, lived a lie during his rise, meteoric rise, to in sporting fame. He was a victim of the horrors of war and of the behaviour of a few individuals. I reflected on that, not the lie that he'd lived like that, but the impact of evil on his life as he grew up and went on into adulthood. That's what John is writing about, that kind of world, that kind of evil that can rub shoulders with us, the world of sinful, destructive attitudes and actions, the impact that not only individuals but everyone around them can be affected by. He says, do not, verse 17, uh, 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. It's not hard not to love that. But in all its other insidious actions and acti activities and attitudes, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And he sets out why we don't love the world and rather we love the Father. And the first is we've been forgiven. He reiterates that several times. The second is the Bible. The commands are our source of inspiration and learning. The third is our ever-increasing, hopefully, intimate knowledge of God. And fourthly, the fact that we are born as children of God. We are surrounded by him and the people that love him. 
But most of all, because if we love the world, we're replacing God with the world. But we all feel the pull of that world. And we need to live in that world. We rub shoulders both with the evil and of the sinful ways of people in the world. Do you remember Paul in Romans 7? He says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through, the, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the tension we live with every day. It's the tension that causes us to sin, to fail. It's the tension that causes us victory when we overcome. We struggle, not with a list of do's and don'ts. I think one of the problems with uh, thinking about sin is we immediately start to boil it down to a list of do's and don'ts. It's far deeper than that and much greater than that. We, we need to avoid our, uh, to develop our own avoidance strategies because we are vulnerable in this area, but we need to understand that there's something greater going on. And that's what Paul's referring to. For whilst it is true that there are sins, and last week was, I think, mostly about confessing our sins and those sins being forgiven, and that's often what we mean when we uh, pray the Lord's Prayer, for example, or do the confession on a Sunday morning. But I have to say the nature of sin, let me say this carefully, the nature of sin has always been and still is the nature of sin. Let me say that again. The nature of sin has always been and still is the nature of sin. And that's why John goes on to say in three ways what that nature of sin can be like. Whether that source is the evil or from within us, or from the world around us, here are the three gateways to sin. They are kind of the temptations, if you like, that will lead us into sin. The lust of the flesh, we're in verse uh, 16. The lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I don't care who you are. I'm going to be rude. Every one of us in the room listening has a problem with those three gateways. Sometimes one of them rears their head, sometimes two of them together, and if you've got all three, well, you're really in trouble. And understanding them is what helps us to overcome, to avoid, to live righteous lives, to please and honour God. The lust of the flesh let me say, is not just about sex. Not everything is, but it does include sex. It's often been said the big idols of today, which is what the lust of the eye, uh, lust of the flesh leads us to worship, are money, sex and power. Very big in the world today. I want to describe it this way, anything that drives us away from contentment with God. The lust of the eyes is not just about sex. It's terrible, isn't it? I've mentioned the sex word three, maybe four times in the last minute or so. 
in church. Are you horrified? Lust of the eyes is about anything we feast our eyes on because we, and we begin to desire it, we want to have it. I think it's Billy Graham used to say the first look, and he did say this about the opposite sex, but he said the first look of appreciation is pretty much okay, but uh, when you keep looking and allow your thoughts and desires to fester, then that's when you're falling to sin. Advertising plays on this all the time. Some of you will know that I am a convinced and committed Apple user. I have my own orchard. It's uh, my Apple, my iPhone, my Apple Mac, my iPad, my Apple Music, uh, etc. And you know the thing that Apple does, and Microsoft do the same, uh, the thing that Apple does is they do upgrades all the time. Not just of the software, but of the items, uh, of the devices. Emails, websites, TV, billboards, they're designed to make people like me want the next one, the latest one. And I really want them. So if anyone's got a spare 1500 to 2000 pound, I need a MacBook Pro. Lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life. This is less about what I want for myself and more about how I want people to see me. The Greek word for pride here was used to describe a person who boasts about their achievements and their possessions. Isn't that, isn't that tricky in, t- in, 21, in the 21st century? If you go for a job interview or a performance review, you're supposed to big yourself up and show your pride of life uh, in all that you do. So this is again, again a focus on attitude. Uh, as, to, as much as it is about what we amass. How do others see me or see us? So these three gateways, as I draw towards the close, and I have no idea what time I started because I forgot to look at my watch, uh, I like to illustrate them. And what I'm not going to do is illustrate them with, this is what I've done, this is what he's done. I could use Craig off, I could, I could have done, no, I won't. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go back into scripture. So let's go right back to the beginning and to Genesis chapter 3. And this is what it says, and I'll put in there where these three gateways happened. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, even though they had a garden full of delightful things to eat. Uh, Lost my place. And pleasing to the eye. Lust of the eyes. So the two were involved, if not the third. For they were tempted to gain wisdom, it says. The pride of life, to be like God. So she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So right at the beginning, we see those three gateways just happening in the garden. That's where it all started. What started to go wrong? Cross over to the temptations of Jesus, and you've got it very similar. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. In other words, you're hungry, lust for bread, for food. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place, showed him an instant the kingdoms of the world. He said, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It, will, will, it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be, all be yours. Look at it, lust with your eyes. Jesus answered, 
It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So look what you can do and people can see you can do. The pride of life. Jesus said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See why we need the word and the commands that's the avoidance tactic that's what we can draw on when we are tempted down one or three any of these three ways and let me remind you of Paul's words to 1 Corinthians uh, the one in 1 Corinthians 10 just as an encouragement no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear so however hard, hard this sounds God's always provided the way and ensured that you and I can conquer. So this chapter and now this sermon ends with encouragement because we can grasp the nature of sin, we can watch and pray knowing these three gateways and following Jesus' example. Knowing too, one last thing there, we're not condemned by that sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as we set out to make disciples, to do that because of all that Jesus has done for us and we want others to embrace and to enjoy and to join in, perhaps a fresh understanding of the temptations that we will face, the sinful nature that will often try to overcome us, And to understand that the way has already been provided, perhaps we will have, is success the wrong word? We can journey, uh, individually and together. So Stephen Cottrell, again, addressed a whole room of hundreds of bishops. And this is what he said. And this is my my last thing. Being a bishop is a spiritually dangerous business. We say a lot of prayers, we preach a lot of sermons, we need a lot of services, people treat us like we're very important people, people carry our bags, drive our cars, defer to us and endlessly usher us to the top seats at the top tables. And if we allow ourselves, we can be taken in by this and after a while we will stop looking like the beggars that need the bread ourselves just as much as everyone else. And we'll start imagining that we're the bakers who make the bread. We are not. We can only share what we have received. So my advice to myself when it comes to evangelism, he said, is this. And it's our, my advice to me and to you this evening. Remember that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. Today and every day. Then share that with others. Let's pray.